For those that remain in the auditorium and are watching online, please take your Bibles if you would. Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and it's our goal this morning to look at the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. As we have been seeing in our walk through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, the letter writer, or better perhaps the pastor, his sermon notes, his desire is to show us the superiority of Jesus Christ, the reality that Christ is the Messiah, he is the promised one, he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, he is the all-sufficient Savior, he is superior to all that has come before and remains superior to anything that might come after. And so the focus of the entire letter slash sermon notes is the superiority of Christ. In order to do that, in particular to his audience, which is largely, if not exclusively, Jewish Christians, especially those that are sort of waffling, they're wondering whether they should not go back to the familiar, go back to what they have always known and growing up and their ancestors. He's attempting to contrast Jesus Christ with all of the things that they would hold as being important and so he has shown that Jesus is superior to angels and to Moses and to Abraham and to the law and to the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and all of these realities. The sacrificial system has certainly been there, somewhat perhaps maybe in the background and not the foreground. And that's going to shift as he heads through chapter 9 and into chapter 10 where the focus becomes the sacrifices of ancient Israel and how Christ is that sacrifice fully and finally. But the key verse for us this morning is in verse 9, where it says, according to this arrangement, the old arrangement of the old covenant, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The Old Testament system was not bad. The Old Testament law is good and it's healthy. And if we follow its dictates, in particular the moral component of it, it'll be good for our souls and good for our communities. It's a good gift from God. And the sacrificial system points to the greater reality, and it also, for its time, was good. Atonement was actually offered. But in all these things, it was incomplete. It was imperfect. Something greater, someone greater needed to come. And as we spent last year going through the book of Leviticus, I hope that you will see the benefit of that, and in particular as we walk through our passage this morning. But one of the main things that the old system could not do anything about is the internal reality of the person. The one who was coming to worship, their conscience, their insides, their soul, could not be finally and fully impacted by the old covenant. It was concerned with externals. It presupposed a relationship with God on the inside. But even David would go on to say in Psalm 51, which we read part of this morning, if you required burnt offering and sacrifice, I would give that to you. But you require, what you require is a contrite heart, a repentant heart. The inside is what needs to be changed. Now when we think of conscience, a number of things may come to mind. Our conscience may bother us and may be bothering us 
regarding something that we have done that is wrong, we know it's wrong, and yet it has not yet seen the light of day. We have not revealed it, we have not repented of it, we have not asked for forgiveness from it, and so our conscience is that internal mechanism that reminds us and lets us know that something is not right. One of the greatest examples of this in literature certainly is Edgar Allan Poe throughout his writings, but certainly Telltale Heart. Perhaps Telltale Heart's a little dark for you and you might be more into Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip. There's a somewhat amusing storyline in that comic strip where Calvin has broken his father's very expensive binoculars. His father does not yet know that the binoculars have been broken. And so there's one strip where the thought bubble above Calvin, he's just sweating bullets, and he says, he just, dad knows, he knows, he's just waiting, he's just trying to get me, and his conscience is bothering him, and his father says, please pass the salt, and Calvin just bursts forth, I did it, okay, I did it, I broke your blockers, I'm sorry, and his conscience just bursts forth. Perhaps we've been there. There is also a part of our conscience when we have done wrong, and maybe somebody else is taking the fall for it, somebody else is taking the blame for it. If any of us have siblings, this was perhaps the best case scenario, especially when it was us that had actually initiated the disobedience. If we could pin it on one of our siblings, that would be fantastic. But there's another element of our conscience and one that I certainly uh, am very familiar with, and that is when the outside of us, at least to most that know us, seems to be a certain way. And yet we know, deep down, when no one else is watching, we're not who we think or who others think we are. We know there is a gap, there is a difference between the public perception of us and the internal reality of us. Luther struggled with this mightily. He would arise before any of his fellow priests and go to confession, which means at least one of his other fellow priests had to also be awake at that hour. And he would start his day with hours of confession to the point where he was wearing out his fellow priests. Marty, there's no other sins, man. I don't don't know where you're getting all these sins from. But his conscience was just burning within him. He knew what he wanted to be. He knew who God called him to be and that he knew, perhaps better than anybody else, that he was not that. And that is the reality to which our author turns our attention this morning. We can fool some of the people some of the time, but the reality is, if we're honest, we know who we are before God, and if that is not taken care of, if that reality is not resolved, then there is a burden, a weight on our conscience, a weight that grows every day. So follow along if you would as I read the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their regular duties, ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. The audience of this letter slash sermon is struggling with continuing on in the faith that Christ and his sacrifice are alone necessary, actually can provide forgiveness fully and finally to them. And they are tempted to go back to something that is inferior yet familiar. And so the author of Hebrews wants to remind his audience of the inferiority to everything other than Christ. And one of those realities is the old system. And as we've mentioned, the problem with the old system is not that it wasn't good or from God, it's that it's imperfect and incomplete. It can't deal with the inside, the soul of a person, the conscience. And so notice in the first place then, even the way that the tabernacle was structured, structured reminds us that our conscience, in particular our unclean conscience, separates us from God. The tabernacle was a visible, tangible reminder in many ways of the, di- the, the, the gap, the difference between us and God, the divide between us and God. He is holy and we are not. And so notice in the first place that regulations remind us of our sin. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. As we went through the book of Leviticus last year, I'm sure there were times when we were like, Phew, thank God we're not under that covenant anymore. Can I get an amen? There was a lot of regulations. The whole calendar was set, these feast days, and then this feast day, and this high holy day. All the areas of your life, from how you cut your hair, to what you ate, to how you got up in the morning, how you went to bed at night, the natural realities of life. And then when you sin, what to do about that? And there were five different types of offerings for different types of sins. Regulations upon regulations. And it was a tangible, visible, consistent reminder, we are not holy, God is. And if a holy God is to dwell in the midst of an unholy people, There are certain regulations and rules and protocols and parameters and boundaries that must be put into place and must be kept. And yet you can imagine as an Israelite, as an ancient Jew, there is this daily reminder you can't go into God's presence fully. There's a gap. There's a barrier. Even the uh, the um, veil between the holy place and the most holy place, we'll get you in just a moment, had woven into it cherubim, reminiscent of the protectors of God's holiness going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, who is placed 
at the entrance of the Garden of Eden after the fall, a cherub, not a fat baby uh, with little wings, but an awe-inspiring holy angel of God to protect God's holiness. There are reminders all over the place. You can't get into God's presence. You are unholy. He is holy. And then there are restrictions that remind us of our sin. An earthly place of holiness was set up. And it had at least three areas. As we know from a walk through the book of Leviticus, the nation of Israel camped three tribes on the four sides, north, east, south, west. And they were all looking at the central tabernacle, which had a linen fence. If you looked at it, all you would see is this white curtain. That's a barrier, a restriction. The furthest that any regular Israelite could get was just inside that tent, that wall, sorry, to the altar of sacrifice, the bronze altar. If you're bringing your sacrifice, that's as far as you could get. Non-priests then are restricted from even going into the holy place. He said a tent was prepared in its first section. It's the lampstand, the table, the brother presence. It's called the holy place. It had three articles, three pieces of furniture in there. The altar of incense just in front of the curtain. Had the table of showbread every Sabbath, 12 loaves baked and prepared, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it had the lampstand, that menorah, seven um, lamps, each to be lit and never to stop burning. The lamps never went out. So every night, the priest would make sure there was enough oil to last until the morning, and every morning, make sure there's enough oil to last for the day. And only some priests were in there only some of the time. But there was a barrier. You came to offer your offering at the bronze altar. You could see the tent at the tent entrance, but you could not get in there. Only Levites, only priests could go in there. And then even the priests were restricted because only one priest, the high priest, could go into the most holy place, and he only once a year. Behind the second curtain was a section, second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherry beam of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, there is some discrepancy, or it appears to be, that we have to address. It appears the author of Hebrews, who knows the Jewish rituals well, knows the Jewish ways of life well, puts the altar of incense inside of the most holy place instead of in the holy place where it was just in front of the curtain. But you notice the change in language. For a tent was prepared in the first section in which were the lamps stand, the table, the bread of the presence. But then behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Most believe that what he's saying is the one connecting piece of furniture between the Holy Place and the Most Holy Place is the Ark of the Incense. On it was the incense that was continually burning, reminiscent of or symbolic of the prayers of the saints. And it was incense from that altar that the high priest had to take in a separate censer into the holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement 
and blood that was offered must be applied to both the Ark of the Covenant and to the horns and the altar of incense. So he's not necessarily saying that the altar of incense was inside the most holy place as a piece of furniture, but simply that it's connected to the most holy place. Our prayers are what connect us to God. And yet in this circumstance, in this reality, there's still that barrier. Only the high priest, and only once a year, and only if he has blood for his sins and the sins of the people can he go in. There's restrictions everywhere. The whole system is designed to remind the people that were a part of it, God is holy and you are not. And notice even the three implements that were in the Ark of the Covenant are in the most holy place. The manna, a symbol of, a reminder of Israel's complaints. Israel would have won the Olympics for complaining every year. And yet they are not unlike us. Did you bring us out here, Moses, to starve us to death? We're better off in Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves, sure, but at least we had leeks and onions and all these lovely things to eat. A reminder of Israel's complaining and grumbling. Aaron's staff that budded, why is that there? Aaron was chosen as the high priest and it was his sons that were to continue in his line as high priests. And yet the nation of Israel rebelled. So God said, bring all the staffs of all the leaders and the one that buds, that has life in it, a miracle of God, that is the staff, the person to whom that staff belongs, he is God's chosen one. Again, a symbol of Israel's rebellion. Many lives were lost. And then the tablets of the covenant, the stones, the two tables of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written. But as we all know, these were not the original copies. The two tablets of stone in the most holy place are the second copy. Because what happened to the first? Moses receives them on the mountain. And as he is communing with God and literally receiving the law, what is happening down at the base of the mountain? Israel is an open rebellion against God. There are symbols of Israel's unholiness all over the place and reminders of God's holiness throughout. And yet, grace is foreshadowed everywhere. Everywhere there's grace. These regulations for worship are all fulfilled in Christ. The earthly place of holiness is a picture of the heavenly place of holiness that was introduced last chapter in chapter eight, into which Jesus brings us beyond the veil. He is the light of the world. He is the fulfillment of the lampstand in the holy place. He is the bread of life, John six. He is the fulfillment of the table of showbread, the table of the presence. He brings our, uh, the, the prayers of the saints before his father, as does his Holy Spirit. He opens the way fully to his father. And did you notice that in all of these symbols of Israel's rebellion, they also simultaneously are reminders of God's grace. The people complained, what did God do? He fed them. And he fed them every single day until they crossed over the Jordan into the land of promise. It tells us in Joshua that that was the day that the manna stopped. Every day the manna fell. 
How do you enjoy serving complainers? No matter what you do, it's never good enough. Any parents in? And yet what does God do? Faithfully ministers to his people and feeds them. Aaron's staff that budded. Yes, there was rebellion, but there was a high priest chosen, a mediator between God and man, a symbol of Jesus Christ the righteous. And the tables of stone, even though it's the second copy, that in and of itself is a reminder of God's grace because he only needed to give one. He didn't even need to give one, but he gave one. And then when Moses broke it because of the rebellion of the people, God gave another copy. These are good. These are good things to live by. Listen to the wisdom of God. God's grace is everywhere. And then did you notice in verse five, the cherubim of glory over the mercy seat. The cherubim are there, wings outstretched, covering the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Symbols of and reminders of the protectors of God's holiness. And yet it is right there that God meets his people. The mercy seat. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, that is where God's Shekinah glory rests. It can only be there because his holiness is being protected, but it is also only there because his grace desires it to be there. He desires to live in the midst of his people. Don't miss his grace, it's everywhere. The second place, conscience limits our relationship to God. Then how we relate to God is limited by our unclean conscience. There's visible reminders for the nation of Israel of the separation between them and God. And now even how they relate to God, there's limited access, there's limitations. In the first place we see limited access to God. Limited spatially, only one representative once a year could go into the most holy place. And he could only go with blood. And notice verse eight, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Generations of Jews lived, worshiped at the tabernacle and then the temple and died and never saw inside of the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. Only one Jew, the high priest, once a year, could enter. Limited access to God. Limited atonement. Notice in verse 7b. This is fascinating how the, the, the author of Hebrews brings this out. Which he offers for himself and for what? The unintentional sins of the people. The day of atonement, Leviticus 16. Glorious high holy day in the nation of Israel. All the Israelites in their tents waiting with bated breath as the high priest makes the sacrifices. He bathes himself, takes off his usual high priestly garments, puts on his special all-white linen garments, one day a year, sacrifices for himself, goes in beyond the curtain, and thankfully because of the blood, he is not struck dead. Goes out, takes the other sacrifices, one goat for the sins of the people and offers the blood and then the second goat lays his hand on it and sends that goat into the wilderness. And this day of ritual and ceremony and for all of that, the only sins that are being covered for the nation are unintentional sins. <laughs> Even the atonement is limited. It can't 
cover the intentional sins of the people. Those sins still on their conscience that they knew they had committed. Sins that in some case became public as Achan and his sin that was on his conscience. And some that perhaps never did. Even this sacrifice in the Day of Atonement was only for sins that the people had sinned unintentionally. Sins they were unaware of. And yet the sins that they were aware of needed to be taken care of by other different types of sacrifice or in some cases, punishment under the law. And even with this atonement being limited, there's a limited scope then of forgiveness. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The scope is only of the things that are external. They can't deal with the internal, the conscience of the one worshiping. This sin can be forgiven. But the next time you sin, another sacrifice has to be made. There's a breach in the relationship between you and a holy God. And yet, grace is foreshadowed everywhere again in this section. Who is our great high priest? Jesus Christ the righteous. Not after the order of Aaron or Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. Who is the one that entered into the Holy of Holies with his sacrifice, full and free, Jesus Christ the righteous? As we have said numerous times, what happens on the cross when Jesus says it is finished? The veil rents in two and opens up the way into the Holy of Holies. No longer are we restricted or limited. God's grace By this, the Holy Spirit, verse 8, indicates the way of the holy place is not yet open, but it has been opened by Jesus Christ, the righteous. And while these gifts and sacrifices of the old covenant cannot deal with the conscience of the worshiper, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can and does. That we can know that all of our sins, unintentional and intentional, All of our sins, past, present, and yet future, all of our sins, the ones other people know about and the ones only we know about, all of our sins poured out onto Christ on the cross. And when he said it is finished, he meant more than just one thing. Yes, the sacrifice was done, but also The payment for all of our sins was done. Paid in full, it is finished. So as we close this morning, notice that clean consciences only come from God. How can we be clean? How can our consciences be sure that we are right with God? How can we know that the sins that we have committed and haven't admitted to can be forgiven? How do we know that the sins we have committed and have been uh, repented of and revealed can be forgiven of? We can be forgiven of them. How do we know 
with the many gaps that we are aware of between who people think we are and who we portray ourselves to be and who we actually are, how do we know that that can be fully and finally forgiven? We know in the first place that Jesus fulfills the foreshadowed grace. We've already addressed this. But mixed together in the old covenant is both law and mercy, both rules and regulations and grace, both God's holiness and God's mercy in a beautiful way. Yes, all of these regulations and restrictions point to the fact and literally almost scream out the reality, you are not holy and only God is. And yet there is hope. If that was the only message, then why all of the ritual? Why bother with the tabernacle in the first place? Why bother with any of this? Fact is, you're unholy, God is, God is holy, and you're going to die and be separated from him forever. Why then this meeting together? Why did God enter into any of this? Because of his great mercy and his great love. That he would take his holiness into the presence of unholy people. And all of the foreshadowed grace in this passage is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as we've mentioned. All of the elements of the tabernacle, all of the elements of the old covenant, all of these things find their fulfillment in Christ. He is the fulfillment of it all. We also notice in the second place that Jesus fulfills all that the law demands. He says this in Matthew's gospel, I did not come to destroy the law and the commandments, but to fulfill them. Christ's righteous life is just as important as his sacrificial death. Because Christ proved that he is who he said he is. He is the only perfect human being who has ever lived. He proved that he was God and the perfect one of us. There is no law that he ever broke by either commission or omission, ever. Talk about sibling rivalry. Can you imagine having Jesus as your brother? Never sinned, ever. Perfect, fulfilled all that the law demands and then offered that righteousness to you and me as if we had done it, although we had definitely not. And instead takes the penalty for our sinfulness as great as it is and puts it on him on the cross. The great exchange. It's the most beautiful truth in the world. It's the gospel. That's why it's good news. If you are in Christ here this morning, there is never going to be a time in the future where God the Father looks at you and says, okay, but, but there's that though. I know all this is all forgiven, but there's this over here. That's still a problem. It's never gonna happen. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus fulfilled it all all that the law demands, all that his father's righteousness and his righteousness demands, he fulfilled it all on our behalf. And it says in the New Testament that he then took that law with all of its demands and nailed it to the cross. Notice in the third place, he cleanses us from all sin. What a beautiful thing it is to have a clean conscience to know that you are forgiven. If you're here this morning and you're a human being over the age of about six weeks, 
you have sinned against somebody and you have needed to ask for their forgiveness. And that's a tough situation to be in. We know that we've been wrong. Typically though, it takes us a while to get there. So we downplay it, wasn't really that bad. We deny it, wasn't me. We try to distract from it, yeah, but you, but hopefully by the Holy Spirit of God, God brings us to the place where all of our guards are down, all the pretense is done with, and we finally say, you know what, yes, I was wrong. That's a hard place to get to because of our pride and many complexities. But God brings us to that place. And you know, you know as you sit here this morning, that moment, those moments of tension. How's this gonna go? This conversation that I know I need to have, but I don't want to have. Most of us would rather do anything than have conflict. We just, we just hate conflict. And yet, if you're alive, you're going to have it. And so how do you deal with it? You deal with it by owning it and, and asking for repentance. But oh, that feeling. When that person that we love, when that person that we have had a broken relationship with says, I forgive you. To know in that moment that a relationship is restored. It may not be the same moving forward. But there is a, a, such an amazing blessing of having a clean conscience. Now we'll screw it up in the next five minutes, but for that moment to have a clean conscience, how glorious then to know that because of Jesus Christ the righteous, as we stand this morning or sit this morning in the presence of God, before him he says, your conscience is clean. Your sins are forgiven in, in my son Jesus Christ. We can know that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from most of our unrighteousness. No. <laughs> he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise. And it's true. It's true. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to the old ways of trying to do deals with God. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Or I'll be good enough. I'll do enough good things. I'll attend church just enough. I'll give just enough. I'll serve just enough. And God and I, we got this thing going here. No, it's really true. Grace is available. And it is full and in Jesus Christ it is free. Jesus then opens full access to God. There's no longer any barriers, spatially or otherwise. Full access to God. There's no system of hierarchy of priests and sort of you know, levels. There's no secret rooms at grace where only certain people can go into certain times of the year. There's no secret handshake, there's no code, there's no inner circle, there's no cobble where like the elders kind of get together in a dark room and light some candles and there's none of those things. 
Access to God the Father is fully available to all who repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. The veil has been split. Can you imagine being the priests on that rotation in that moment? You've never seen beyond that curtain. How many times have you been tempted to take a peek? But you've never seen in there. And there is an earthquake and darkness over the face of of at least that area so much so that even a hardened soldier says, truly this was the Son of God. And in that moment, Jesus Christ cries and is finished and the curtain is ripped in two and you can see right into the Holy of Holies. Access to the Father is fully granted, fully open. And he's gonna expand on that as we move through the rest of nine and into chapter 10. Come boldly, he says, to the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. Now this is our struggle but this is true. Even those who have been followers of Jesus Christ for many, many years may still struggle with this, but it is true. In Jesus, we are loved, forgiven, and free. In Jesus, in Christ, God the Father, at least three times when his son was here on the earth, said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in him, he says the same thing about you this morning. That's my boy. That's my girl. Proud of them. They're one of mine. Fully forgiven. Fully known and fully loved. And free in Jesus Christ the righteous. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with judgment. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Sometimes it's been our own conscience. And John will say, even when our conscience accuses us, thanks be to God, his grace is greater than our conscience. Maybe it's others that accuse us. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is there's nothing that anybody can say that we haven't already admitted. Yes, that's true. But here's something that's also true. I am forgiven only because of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's Satan, who is the great accuser of the brethren, who wants to needle and bring back that thing, that thing from your past that you still trip over. Here's the truth. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, loved, and free. Whatever it is that's holding you back this morning in your conscience, know this, under the old system, the conscience could not be handled, could not be made clean, but in Christ it can. Don't run away from him. Don't hide in the darkness. Run to him, run to the light, and be made free. Because only Jesus Christ can forgive us. He already knows That thing you're hiding, it's not hidden. God knows about it anyway. He fully knows you and in Christ fully loves you, has forgiven you in Christ and made you free from any of his judgment in Christ. The gospel's even better than we currently know it to be and we grow in our reality of it every single day. May we be amazed by him and by his grace to us. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you 
we are not worthy of your love, but we are not worthless. We are loved by you. Father, our consciences trip us up frequently. There are things that we have not yet admitted to, we've not yet confessed. Father, help us to see that your heart towards us is not one of harshness and unforgiveness, but your heart towards us is warm, gentle, lowly, and kind. You make it easy to come back to you. Perhaps we have run and maybe are still running from you. Father, I pray that you would break down those barriers and cause us to run back to you, to come home. Father, maybe it is that we are all too painfully aware of the gap that exists between who people think that we are, who we say we are, and who we actually are. Father, remind us again that we are saved, justified in your sight, legally declared righteous because of the shed blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being saved, every day transformed me more and more like you as you sanctify us, set us apart for your glory, and we one day will be saved, glorified in your presence, removed not just from the penalty of sin, and the, the hold that sin has on over us, but we're removed actually from even wanting to sin. Our desires fully changed, given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Father, to know you and be known by you and to walk in your presence, glorified and glorious. Father, this is our hope. We are not what we should be. We are not what we want to be. We are not yet what we one day will be, but God, by your grace, we are not who we used to be. Father, I pray for anybody who is here who does not know this, does not have assurance of your love for them, your redemption of them, and reconciliation to you. Father, may they ask questions of me, one of our elders, or the person that brought them, anyone here who knows you. Father, for those who are struggling this morning to believe that this is true, Father, help them. Help them to know the truths of your word. Are you holy? Yes, more holy and glorious and awe-inspiring and fearful than we could possibly fathom. But are you mercy and grace and kindness and love? Yes, in ways deeper and richer than that we have ever experienced. God, help us to know that our consciences truly can be clean. And that in gratitude to you for that, we would desire ever more to live like you. Make us holy, Father, because you are holy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.